have a travel bug. Definitely. I don't know its name. All I know is that I have to feed it at least once a year by going to new and interesting places. From these places, I write about my experiences. So, where on earth am I now? Lake Titicaca, Sunday, the 24th of October, 2010. Being a researcher in the field sucks, as it turns out. I went along to my interview on Friday only to find it cancelled, as Ariel, the man I was supposed to be interviewing, had to run off to Copacabana or somewhere at short notice. So I went to a third organisation instead to introduce myself, Radio Desayo. The woman I wanted to speak with wasn't there either, so I left my details. This dead end of an afternoon wasn't the worst thing in the world, it just means I'll have to do some interviews with mum and dad are here, which isn't ideal. If only I'd got my first interview out of the way, it would have been a great ending to a really productive week. However, every cloud has its silver lining, and I realised I had nothing to do over the weekend. After working hard all week, I was prepared for my interviews and was just waiting for them to happen. So, why not go somewhere? I had been so frustrated being in bed ill for a week, and then I had made so much progress this week that I thought I had earned it. I arranged to go on a day trip to Lake Titicaca. You get over the name. The lake is high up on the Bolivian plain and lies half in Bolivia and half in Peru. Since Bolivia is landlocked, the country's navy, yes, it has one, practice on the lake. It is, after all, the biggest in all of South America and the highest navigable body of water in the whole world. The day was a long one, leaving the hostel at 7.30 on Saturday morning and getting back at 11 at night, but it was well worth it. My guide for the day was Pablo, who said he was 29 but looked younger. He didn't seem to speak English, which meant we were relying on my Spanish for the whole day. I think it did quite well. The day was so long because it took so long to get there. We got a bus first up for about three hours. Like Tiwanaku, it took us out of La Paz, up through El Alto, and out onto the barren plain above. Me and Pablo had broken conversation the whole way. Then came leg two of the trip. We came to the first part of the lake. Already the views were stunning. In the harsh, dusty brown landscape, which stretched for miles and miles, a stretch of tiny, ice-cold blue was a welcome sight. Now, we needed to cross it to get to the peninsula on the other side. Simple. The bus lady said, You need to get off here and pay 50 cents for a short boat crossing to the other side. Then we will continue on the same bus so you can leave your bags here. That last bit confused me. If the bus can drive round, then why do we have to get a boat? I was assuming it would drive, as there were no huge ferries for a bus or car. There wasn't room. This was a narrow stretch of water with two tiny, sleepy villages, one on each side at the water's edge. The bus didn't have wings. I decided maybe I'd misunderstood and took my bag with me. I hadn't been on a boat in ages. It was nice. All the villagers and tourists crammed in, and we rumbled across the water for about five minutes or so. As we got to the other side... I looked in between my feet through a gap in the wooden floorboards of the boat and saw, well, the water of the lake. Why not? The hordes of people got off, including me and Pablo, and then stood there. So now what? I asked Pablo. He said that we were waiting for the bus. I followed his gaze, turned, and looked back across the water. Oh, cool. 
This huge coach, and others like it, was boarding a small and very feeble-looking wooden platform. It was then slowly motored across. Mystery solved. It was such a strange sight. It looked as if the coach would sink as soon as it boarded the little wooden surface, but it didn't. Pablo spoke of how there had been an accident not too long ago, where a coach had ended up in the lake. This is no doubt why we all had to get out and cross separately. You know, just in case. But these feeble planks carried our huge coach across the water to our side. Then we got back on the bus and continued on. It was roughly 40 minutes more in the bus, but the scenery was getting more interesting, more green and varied. And every now and then, between two rocky hills, you would get a glimpse of the vast blue lake, sometimes on the right, sometimes all of a sudden on the left. On the way, we came across, guess what? Yep, another protest. Even in isolation, away from the nearest civilization, they happen. I found myself wondering just what is the point of them protesting out here, on this winding road in the middle of nowhere. And yet there they were. A few hundred people walking down the road. The bus had to pull over to let them pass. They were waving the same chequered flag I'd seen in the other protests too. I asked Pablo what it meant. It turns out this flag is used throughout South America by different indigenous groups to symbolise equality. They passed, seemingly with some destination in mind, though out here, God knows where, and then we carried on our way. Eventually, we arrived in Copacabana. Not to be confused with the Mexican holiday resort, Copa, as it is locally known, is a market town on the Titicaca shores. All boats of the islands leave from here. We had an hour and a half to kill before our boat left, so Pablo asked if I wanted to see the church. Sure. Wow. Now, I've seen a lot of churches, as you do if you're a Catholic boy, but this was something else. I think it was so incredible as it was so unexpected. The lake goes on for further than the eye can see, so it's just like a little seaside town, and we wandered through the markets up the hill. At first sight, I thought, wow, that's a bit odd. Then I realised I was just seeing the gate. It turns out this church is one of the biggest in all of Bolivia. And what a sight. To be honest, it looks a bit more like a mosque than anything else. Round domed roofs with coloured tiles here and there, but mainly a stark white. And inside, there was gold covering the back wall. It looked old. Unless you looked up and at the ceiling, which was every colour under the sun and looked like it had had a lick of paint yesterday. It wasn't until we were right inside that I realised we had, in fact, stumbled upon a wedding. The happy couple were coming up the aisle in front of us. I thought this wasn't right, but the church was packed with tourists. I've seen it in La Paz, too. Just because there is a wedding doesn't mean tourists and locals can't still come in and have a nose around. Still, I thought it was a bit weird seeing Danish backpackers take pictures of the bride as she stood there with a fixed grin and a look of confusion. So Pablo and I left, and, after seeing the candle room next door, went and had lunch. Finally, it was time to board our boat. We all piled on in the usual way and sat down. However, once we got going, Pablo turned to me and said this leg of the journey was another hour and a half. He then clambered round onto the outside of the boat and asked me to follow. Um, okay. I did, hanging on tight so as to avoid an unplanned swim, and we made our way up to the very front of the boat. It was perfect. All the tourists who had jostled for position inside at the front or on top of the boat looked out at us as we went one better and grabbed the best seats they hadn't thought of. The sun shone and on we went. 
The lake itself was so peaceful, so still. Like I say, it was like the sea, because it went on further than the horizon. However, there were hardly any waves. It was flat and quiet. There's something about the sound of water gently lapping at a boat, which can make you feel so relaxed. I put my hands behind my head and lay back in the sun. Unfortunately, this feeling didn't last forever, as a cold wind picked up. I'd left my jumper in the boat, so I started to really freeze. I just concentrated on the views for the final 20 minutes or so. And boy, were there views. At one point on our right, we could see bright blue lake with the rocky Isla de la Luna behind and the snowy mountainous peaks of the mainland behind that. Incredible! When we finally arrived at the Isla del Sol, or Island of the Sun, this too was breathtaking. A small community lived there, mostly farmers. There were farming steps, carved out of the land, which rose all the way up to the top. These provide the only flat land on the island as well, as it is very steep and hilly. As the boat pulls in to the tiny dock, you notice these steps of land, but don't think much of them. Until, that is, you're actually on the island, and you see that each step is huge. Big enough, in fact, for people to build their houses on, each step was that wide. The climb to the top was hard work. We were walking up steep stone steps at high altitude. But the views were rewarding, and the higher we got, the better they were, and the further you could see. Each time I stopped to take another photo, I realised just how huge this lake really is. It goes on and on and on. Once we'd climbed a decent height, we took one of the huge steps of land and walked along it, around the island towards Inca ruins. Every now and then, we would have to stand aside and let donkeys pass. They seemed to be in a rush to get somewhere, and there were cows, pigs and sheep too. I assumed there were only domesticated farming animals here. But then every now and then, when I was walking, a bush to the side of our path would rustle suddenly, and it wasn't the wind. There were other creatures on this island. Eventually we arrived at the small Inca ruins, there were the remains of old houses, but the only thing missing were the roofs. Stones held together with only mud and grass as cement, and yet here they still stood thousands of years later on this exposed island, still as solid as ever. Giant holes in the walls indicated where there used to be ornaments and sarcophagi, all made of solid gold. Before long, it was time to hop back on the boat. I wish we could have stayed longer, we'd had barely more than an hour on the island. However, it was such a long trip back... La Paz certainly felt very far away right now. I learnt my lesson on the way and wore my huge jumper before sitting again at the top and the very front of the boat on the way back. The late afternoon sun was still fairly strong and I got a slight tan as it reflected off the lake. And for me, that's saying something. Back in Copa, we had about an hour before our bus left. So Pablo took me to a cafeteria market. I seen these in La Paz. It's basically a huge room with lots of separate sort of kiosks all selling exactly the same food, and yelling out at you to go to them rather than any of the others. How they actually compete, I have no idea. Pablo introduced me to the most amazing drink I've had out here, Appy. It's made out of a special type of red corn, with lots of sugar and served hot. It is the best. It would be perfect back home on a cold winter's night. A bit like a hot chocolate, it warms the body up, but it's a bit sweeter and dark red in colour. With it, we ate, well, something... I can't for the life of me remember what they were called, but it was basically hot dough covered in honey. Real comfort food. After this, whilst waiting for the bus, another guide, Pablo's friend, let me try his popcorn, which he had in a huge bag. 
This was something else. It was so sugary. I say popcorn as this is the best word for it. But it was bigger and sweeter than popcorn. I got a bag for myself. The lady selling it had loads, huge piles of the stuff on a massive sheet. My bag alone contained far too much to eat in one go. I'm writing this 48 hours later now, and I still have half a bag left at my feet. So the people of Copa had a sweet tooth. Suits me. As we made our way back on the bus, I gazed out at the lunar landscape in the sunset. Endless, rocky, barren hills in a golden light. It was quite surreal. I chatted to Pablo's friend for a bit, but he seemed outraged that I had to work in La Paz. Chicas y mas, he advised. Girls and more. I'll bear that in mind. We continued on the winding road around the mountains, until at one point, in the middle of nowhere, long after dark had fallen, we were stopped by the police. They had positioned themselves on a corner, about five or six of them, with torches, and they wanted to check over the bus. Apparently, we were on a popular route for smuggling in drugs and other illegal items from Peru. So we all had to show some form of ID to the officers, as they checked over the bus and then sent us on our way. Then it was time to get off the bus once more and cross the lake. In the dark, it was a lot more relaxing for some reason. I sat out from under the roof to catch some stars, but only saw one or two. Again, the bus was brought across on the feeble wooden platform. As we waited in the tiny village of San Pedro, I heard chanting from the main square. Pablo informed me that the government was proposing to build a bridge across the lake. Those who provided the boat service were obviously protesting, as they would lose their livelihood. I had to agree. It seemed a bit of a shame, speeding across a bridge instead of boarding a little boat whilst your bus did the same. The final leg of the journey was uneventful. It was just so long. I fell asleep for a couple of hours, with my huge sack of popcorn resting on my lap. When I woke, I saw El Alto at night, for the first time as we drove through. It really is huge. When you see the lights stretching on, you realise just how big it is. Bigger even than La Paz. At night, though, it did seem eerily silent. And finally we were back. I thanked Pablo for a great day and crashed into bed, surrounded by popcorn. And now the working week has begun again in La Paz. Now I'm going to try and get some interviews done. Mum and Dad arrive tomorrow. And then it's time for a whole new country altogether. The Travel Bog Podcast is written and produced by David Monero. For exclusive pictures and videos to accompany the series, go to twitter.com forward slash David Monero.